the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, Bible questions or life questions or anything you think that we might be able to help with. We'll do what we can. We need you to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. And so with your hands-free device, there's just one button. Call now and you'll be able you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Hey, tonight I get to teach Isaiah 25 and 26. Um, that's our Wednesday night study. And of course, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow uh, on the date day edition of the program. So ladies, especially for you, um, if you need any encouragement or have any questions of Paula, she will be here. Maybe I can get her to talk a little bit about the conference that she was teaching at last week, but that's up to her because it's her show. But that'll be tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word, and I can't wait. Okay, let's get to questions while we wait for your phone calls. Um, Our first one comes in from Kirby from our email inbox. Is the scroll of remembrance mentioned in Malachi three sixteen and 17 the same as what Jesus refers to in Luke chapter 10, verse 20? Is this scroll the same as the Lamb's book of life in Philippians 4, 3 and Revelation 13, 8? If not, and it is not the same. So uh, here's the if not question. If not, will the Jews, because they're God's people, be handled differently in how they enter heaven? Or does Revelation twenty fifteen answer that? Uh, on a related topic, is the Bema Seat of Christ only for Christians? Good questions, Kirby. A couple of things. Um, um, the Book of Remembrance uh, in the Old Testament is not the same at all as the Lamb's Book of Life. Um, in the Old Testament, you know, the kings had secretaries, and they were always taking notes of things. Uh, there were times you can read through uh, the Old Testament, you'll find that there were times when the kings were having a hard time sleeping and the books would be uh, brought out to them so they could sort of be read to sleep and they would remember things. So the Book of Remembrance is just a book to to, to take special note of uh, special acts that people did, acts of heroism or, or acts where their loyalty to the king was demonstrated. And kings wrote that down. They always wanted to remember. It's a good thing always to remember when people are especially good to you. So that's what uh, was going on here. Now, uh, Jews, um, 
will not be handled any differently in how they enter heaven. Um, it's just, there's only one way to heaven. Um, Revelation 20:15 that you referenced, Kirby says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, so the book of life, the only way to get your name entered into the Lamb's book of life is to become a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. So Jews don't get a special dispensation. They don't get a special pass. Uh, they have to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. And that is one consistent uh, teaching throughout our scriptures. Uh, the fact that Jews are God's people, remember, we have to separate individual Jews from national Israel. And it is national Israel that God chose. God chose Israel to demonstrate his character, his goodness, his faithfulness, and his power to the pagan world around them. Um, so it's national Israel that's chosen and not individual Jews. We need always to remember that. I know a lot of times we Christians are a little reluctant to share Jesus with Jews because we feel like, well, they're God's people and we don't want them to, to, to think that they have to be Christians. Well, they have to be. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, the first four verses, actually said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he affirmed it with a triple oath. He said that he'd give his place in heaven if only his brothers, the Jews, who would believe. Now, these are the Jews that are trying to murder him. But he so wanted his people to find their Messiah that he was willing, literally and truly willing, to give up his place in heaven. Now, of course, we know that's not possible, but Paul understood that at the same time because it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know that he was telling the truth. So the Book of Remembrance and the Lamb's Book of Life, Kirby, are two completely different things. Good question. Here is a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Uh, he says, since the Bible clearly states who or what a saint is, Jude 3, um, Paul writes, I feel, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and all delivered to the saints. Nacho's point is that the saints are those who believe. He then asks, how does the Roman Catholic Church stand on the idea that saints are only in heaven uh, rather than we who are Christians are saints? Well, um, like a lot of things doctrinally, Nacho, the Roman Catholic Church has, has corrupted the meaning, the clear meaning of the text. I like that you said, since the Bible clearly states uh, over and over in Paul's letter, he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus or the saints who are in Philippi or the saints in Colossae and on and on and on. And he's talking about living, breathing, born-again Christians. Now, the Roman Catholic Church ascribes a different level of sainthood to some people who uh, have been credited with miracles or some outstanding work that they did. And then we call them saints. And of course, then they teach, the the, the Roman Catholic Church does, that we can pray to the saints, and that's what their um, theology represents. Um, so um, they do it because of tradition. They do it because um, keeping people away from Jesus is one way that they can keep people trapped in their false doctrine. Um, but it's important to remember that the saints are born-again Christians. And um, when I teach one of the epistles of Paul that starts with the saints, I always say, I kind of like the sound of St. Ron. <laughs> but the idea is we're saints set apart, sanctified, holy. That's what the word means. And we are saints when we are born again, when our sins are wiped away and we're forgiven. So don't worry so much about what the Roman Catholic Church does. Their, their doctrine is terrible. Um, doesn't mean there aren't some Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. It's just... They really don't understand, frankly, because they're not taught and much of what they are taught, Nacho, uh, they are taught incorrectly. Hope that answers your question. Good questions. Here is a question anonymously. A challenging question. Uh, how can Christians be outraged with ISIS or other terror groups um, while understanding that Joshua did the same acts of terror in Canaan? Anonymous you need to really read your Bibles and don't just repeat what other people say. 
Um, I want you to understand, and all you have to do is go through the, the stories. When Joshua and the troops of Israel went through Canaan, the promised land, they were there on a judgment mission from God. Unless you're really, uh, unless you're willing rather to to uh, call God a terrorist, you don't really understand at all. Uh, we should be outraged with ISIS and other terrorist groups who, who willfully kill people for no reason. Joshua was under orders. Remember Joshua chapter five, anonymous. Remember when he got his marching orders from Jesus himself? They were on the eve of the very first battle in Canaan. And Joshua went out to be alone and he ran into this unbelievable figure of a man. That's how he saw it. But it was the angel of the Lord Jesus in pre-incarnate appearance. And so terrifying was he that Joshua said, Are you for us or for them? And Jesus said, neither, but I've come to you as the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. And in that instant, Joshua would have taken a deep breath, sort of a sigh of relief. Good, because I'm on his side too. And then Jesus gave him the battle plan, not only for Jericho, but battle plans for subsequent battles in Canaan. Now remember, God prepared the land of Canaan for the people of God. And for hundreds of years, God was patient. He warned the pagan peoples around them. They didn't pay attention. And finally, it was time for judgment. God's just, or, or God's judgment rather, is righteous and just. And it can't even be compared to an act of terror, nor is it... Um, genocide or any of the other things that I've heard called. Um, people in Canaan, their time had run out. They refused to repent after hundreds of years. And now it was time for the consequence. There's always a consequence. But this wasn't genocide. It wasn't a slaughter. It certainly, as I said, can't be compared with terrorism. See, this is why, Anonymous, I tell people to read their Bibles instead of just talking to people who are unbelievers who don't understand. You know, one of the things that I hope you understand, Anonymous, is that God actually saved a lot of people eternally. A lot of people eternally. By having Joshua wipe out everybody. The children who were in the promised land, who would have been killed prior to the age of accountability, those who didn't know their right hand from their left, I had a similar question yesterday. Um, in the book of, of um, Jonah. And Nineveh, God said, don't be mad that I want them to repent. Don't you know I have 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, these are kids. These are kids who, when they die, before the age of accountability, will go to heaven for eternity. They won't be lost forever. And while to us it sounds like, well, that's not fair. They didn't have a chance. God, who knows everything, knew that if they were given the chance to live, they would end up just like their parents. And God spared a whole bunch of kids in Canaan from eternity and torment. So it's really important that you understand the heart of God. Whenever you're reading something like that that you don't understand... Assume, start with the assumption that God is good, God is loving, God is fair, and God is just and righteous. And then when we ascribe sin to God, well, maybe, hopefully, we'll, find, we'll seem just a little bit silly. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Devin. Um, Pesteron, what's the primary, what is the primary function in your role as a pastor. Um, Devin, I don't think there is only one. Um, my primary role, I would say, is to love Jesus. I do. To love his people. I do. 
and then to care for them. You know, when Peter was being restored, Jesus said to him, um, Peter, feed my flock. Second time, he said, tend my sheep. And then third time again, feed my flock. And that really describes what the role of a pastor is. Uh, I study to show myself approved a workman rightly dividing the word of God. Um, I study to prepare Bible studies here. Devin, we, we do, uh, I do three Bible studies a week. I do an Old Testament study Wednesday, a New Testament study on Friday, and a different New Testament study on Sunday. Uh, in uh, between the teachings, I counsel. Uh, Paul and I do a lot of counseling. Uh, and um, uh, just tend to the needs of the flock. Uh, we take care of them at their worst times of life. We rejoice with them in their best times of life. You know, just sitting here today, we're having an email problem here. At least I was on on uh, my computer. And uh, we have a, a computer guy that God has just blessed us with. He's been around forever. And I was sitting around talking to him while he was working on the computer. Because believe me, I'm no help when it comes to working on the computer. And um, he asked me the question. He said, how long has the school been going? And I said, well, the school's been going 20 years. This is our 20th year. We're about to finish. And he said, you know, we've been here longer than that. We were here before the school started. He and his wife and then two little kids. Now he's a grandfather and a son-in-law. And I just thought, no, it's impossible you've been here over 20 years. And I remember the day they came in And see, that's why I love my job so much because not only have they become wonderful friends and producing great fruit for the church here, uh, I've watched them through the transition from being unsaved to saved. I watch them sort of navigate what it's like to learn day by day to walk with Jesus. I've I've been with them in crises. I've been with them uh, in, in wonderful times of blessing. And I watched God turn the lives of people who were devoted to sin, men and women that hated God, and change everything in tending them during those times is another of my primary functions. So I teach the Bible. I pray for the people. Uh, we counsel the people. We cry with them. We laugh with them. Um, Devin, I don't know if you're called to be a pastor or not, but it's a great job. I got to tell you, I I feel like the richest, most blessed man on the face of the earth. Thank you for the question. Let's go to phones now and talk with John calling from San Antonio. John, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me? I can hear you great, John. Okay. Uh, my question is on uh, the Exodus uh when the the Jews were um, in captivity and they were uh, allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem uh, during Nebuchadnezzar's um, captivity and uh, Xerxes and Cyrus allowed them to go back. So the question in our, our Bible study was, which are the what are five of the six books that were written during the, re- the three returns uh, of Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra and uh, Nehemiah um, returning back to Israel. So I said that they were uh, Daniel, um, <laughs> uh, Jeremiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and um, trying to think of the fourth one, you know, uh, Ezekiel. Uh, but uh, would the, the sixth one maybe be uh, the book of Esther? Well, were they yeah, all written I, I, in that time frame? Yeah, uh, they were written during the time frame, but not necessarily of the return to Babylon. But uh, they were written uh, in the time frame uh, leading up to the captivity in Babylon. You know, um, when you see Ruth um, and Esther, um, uh, you see those books um, that, that 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 sort of detail fill in the lines of history. But remember that that Ezekiel was a prophet 
in captivity in Babylon. So his prophecy would have been written um, from Babylon beforehand uh, during during the captivity before they went back to uh, to Jerusalem before the end of I the seven you. years. They were in captivity for seven years. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Ezekiel, only he stayed in Jerusalem. So his book also would have been written uh, during the captivity as well. Daniel's book, John, was written before all of that. Now remember, Daniel was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel right. lived in in uh, throughout the entire captivity, and then some. Uh, some think he died uh, in his nineties, but uh, his book prophesied all of those things, including the return. Uh, to Israel, and then, of course, far, far, far in the future. So I don't think there is uh, anything that we, any way that we can determine the exact dates of writing, nor can we say that uh, they were written during the return. Uh, I think those books, uh, Ezra uh, and Nehemiah, simply chronicle um, the goings-on during the time of the return of the remnant. One of the things, John, is that there's only 50,000 of the of the millions that were taken into captivity uh, and, and were born, including those who were born into captivity uh, in Babylon. Uh, only 50,000 people returned. Um, that's a remnant, a very small number, a percentage of the whole. Uh, and, and yet God obviously knew that was going to happen and promised that it would happen. And then... Uh, the book of Nehemiah, of course, was written um, as a result of Nehemiah's trip back to rebuild the walls. The book of Ezra was written, and we don't right. know who wrote the book of Ezra. Uh, the book of Ezra was written uh, to indicate um, um, the, the trip back to begin the process of rebuilding uh, the temple and resettling in the land. So there's, there's no way to know the dates for sure. Um, right. but what we do know, what we do know, John, is that we have all of the events, uh, both before, during, and after uh, the captivity, uh, that that uh, tell the story of what the captivity is going to be like. Uh, we experience what it was like living uh, through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, but we also have the the happy ending of the return to Jerusalem. The two books that that sort of bum me out the most. Uh, about that is is Ezekiel and Jeremiah, because in both cases, uh, neither one of them had much in the way of converts or success, and their messages were always really difficult. And we know that both in Babylon and especially in Jerusalem, um, the, the people there never listened to a word they said, instead accepting the word of the false prophets. Right. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure, John. Thank you for... You and your friends studying the Bible. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a great evening. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Jim called into the studio and wants to know if I will be attending the event for the National Day of Prayer. That's uh, tomorrow. Uh, Jim, I will not be attending. Uh, generally speaking, I'm not a big fan of of uh, the National Day of Prayer events. I will be spending time, as I do every day, in prayer uh, but Jim, I'm not a big rally type person, and whenever you get a bunch of people around with different views on Scripture, um, I, I just don't think the, the 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 purpose tomorrow is going to be praying for the will of God to be done. I think the purpose of the National Day of Prayer every year is a, a prayer for God to rescue America when in fact um, America won't do what's necessary to uh, to be rescued by the Lord. Uh, so one of the things that I'll be praying for tomorrow is that our nation will be in a position where um, God can pour out his spirit upon us one more time before Jesus returns. So Jim, I hope that answers your question. Probably not a satisfying answer. Uh, we Christians, we like big events and big rallies. Uh, I'm just not one of those one of those guys. One of the things that bothers me about the National Day of Prayer is um, the the unbiblical prayers. Um, you know, we, we'll claim a whole bunch of promises um, of that God made to His people Israel, 
and claim them for ourselves. And that's just bad doctrine. That's just bad theology. Uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Well, generally that's true. But when we go to the national event, uh, national prayer event um, ceremonies, um, you know, we act like we're God's people, America, the United States. And these events get very political. And I think Jesus is is uh, very apolitical. I think he just wants people to get right with him. And I think we need to come to him, not on the basis of a national day of prayer, but we need to come to him every day with one thing in mind. Lord, forgive me if I've sinned. And when we've sinned, we have to take our hearts before the Lord and repent. And then, Lord, say, okay, how can I be used to win others to Christ? And it's so much easier going to a National Day of Prayer event than it is to, to, to stop at work or stop in the store or stop at the gym or wherever it is you go during the day and tell people about Jesus. So, Jim, I won't be there, uh, but I am praying God's blessings on those who are. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. And just my producer just told me today is the anniversary of of the Empire State Building opening for the very first time. Let me tell you a quick story. Paul and I went to uh, New York City. We, we had a Joy of Jesus type event in New York City. We were just on the streets really telling people about Jesus. And on one of those days, we went up to uh, the Empire State Building, which is just across the street from uh, the, the, the theater that, that we were using for the, for the evening performance. And uh, going up to the Empire State Building, your ears actually pop in the elevators but I got to tell you, I've never felt more unsafe in my life in an elevator anywhere. We went up to the observation deck, and it's a beautiful view. I mean, it was just spectacular to see the Central Park and and look uh, all around. You have a full view of New York. But let me tell you something. That elevator, I didn't want to get back in it and go down. That's how unsafe it it thought. It was opened in 1931, so you can imagine... Uh, you got 88-year-old elevators. That was a real scary thing. Let me go to some questions that were sent. We'd love your calls. Here's one that I've been talking about a lot. That's an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, how close are we to the return of Christ? Anonymous, nobody knows, uh, but it could happen at any moment. It might happen now. It might happen tonight. It might happen in the morning. Um, but here's what we're supposed to do. Rather than sort of just hanging around waiting for the return of Christ, knowing that he's coming soon, ought then to motivate us to serve with all of our hearts, holding nothing back. You see, Jesus isn't just taking us to to give us an escape valve from the trouble that's going to come on the world, although that's going to be true in part. But our purpose is to save people who are lost. And Paul says the time is short. Um, make the most of every opportunity. The King James says redeem the time. So what we ought to do, Anonymous, is serve like he's coming tonight and persevere like he's not coming for a long, long time. And when we understand that, then we really grasp the value of the, the doctrine of the imminency of the Lord's return. So we don't know. I can tell you this, that nothing prophetically has to happen uh, before the return of Christ. Every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church uh, has already happened. Then, as you know, we're going to go into the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Then the signs and wonders that Jesus spoke about on the uh, um, Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, uh, will come to pass. Uh, when you are 
if you are here during the Great Tribulation, you will know that after the rapture of the church, then Jesus will be back in approximately seven years, uh, and and uh, he will reestablish his kingdom. But for those of us who are here, we're given signs as well. Second Timothy chapter 3 is one of those places when Paul is writing to young Timothy, saying, Timothy, mark this, in the last days, and his very specific reference, because he is in his last days. The Lord's made it clear to him that he's about to die. Caesar is going to have him beheaded. And this is sort of a, I can't talk to you in person, Timothy, but this is the last thing I'm going to say. Second Timothy is the most personal of all of Paul's letters. And what we do is we look around and see are those things. People be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, lovers of money, lovers of evil and not good. People will be without love or without natural affection. Uh, people will be vengeful. People will be boastful. Um, uh, people won't be able to relate with one another. Our tempers and patience will be short with others. We live in those times. You know, one of the the characteristics in there, and I found this fascinating, I, I just talked about this in my study, I think last Sunday, uh, here at Calvary Chapel, but it says children will be disobedient to their parents. Now, in an ancient culture, that was unthinkable. Can you imagine a child that could be stoned for being disobedient wouldn't rebel. And yet, Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, children will be disobedient to parents as though it's a pattern. And we live in that time. We live in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good. So the signs are all around us. In addition to those signs of the condition spiritually of our nation, uh, of our world, actually, not just our nation, um, we know that in 1948, I mean, people have been saying Jesus is coming soon forever, but, but there's two things that make this generation stick out as the generation that will be here when Jesus comes to take us to be with him in heaven. One is that Israel regained their homeland and gathered together as a nation in Israel. In 1948, the land was given back to them. God even used the Holocaust um, to, to, to move the hearts of the people in Israel was permitted to regather as a nation. Nothing like that has ever happened in the history of the world. 2,000 years away from your homeland or nearly 2,000 years. Uh, and yet you come back and you're Israel again in the same piece of, of, of ground. Uh, the second thing that happened is in 1967, the forces of Jerusalem recaptured and took control of the city of David, Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem once again recognized as the capital of Israel, much to the consternation of the Arabs there and the people in the left spectrum of our political divide. Um, no other generation ever saw those things, and now here we are. So you look at those signs, and Jesus could come back at any moment. Our challenge is simply to be ready. When the Son of Man returns, Jesus said this, will he find faith on the earth? As we prepare to be with Jesus in the rapture, anonymous, every single one of us ought to be spending a whole bunch of our time sharing Jesus with people who are lost. Thanks for the question. Here's a question from Robbie. He says, in the story of the prodigal son, why would the father celebrate the good son instead of just the returning son? You know, Robbie, um, I've been asked this question before, and I think it, it, it sort of misses the point of the parable. You know, um, when when the, the, the older son uh, is all indignant, you know, you threw him a party, you didn't do that for me, the father's message to him was, well, you've been with me in my house. You've always been my son. Your brother, my son, was dead, but now he's returned. Now he's alive. And so he was celebrating a resurrection of sorts in that parable. Um, the other thing I want you to understand is that the good son, the older son, wasn't very good. He was filled with jealousy. He was filled with resentment. 
Um, he was certainly selfish. Um, why does my brother get a party and get a robe and get a ring and get sandals and I don't? Why are we killing the fattened calf for him? Um, he was apparently being obedient to his father, either out of fear or because he wanted something from his father instead of just the fact that my father loves me and I can rest in that. Well, obviously this parable is about Jesus and us. And so the idea here is too many Christians think, well, I can work really hard, I can do good things, and God will have to bless me. Now that's being like the older son, the prodigal son when he was in the mud with the pigs, a place no good Jewish boy should ever be. The Bible says when he came to his own mind in the King James, the New NIV says when he came to his senses, he realized that even the servants in my father's home have it better than I do. And he went home completely repentant. And that's something worth rejoicing over. For those of us who are in Christ and we're walking with Christ, Robbie, we don't need to be rejoiced over. We don't need to be the center of attention. Rather, we need to rejoice with whatever and over whoever God is rejoicing because of. So, great story in Luke 15. Robbie, thank you for the question. Matt says, I know we're not supposed to lie, but how is that even possible? Uh, it's not easy, Matt. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of a sad thing that we've gotten so used to lying that we can't imagine our lives without it. Let me tell you another quick story. This is before I got saved. Uh, I'm in the car business. And uh, I was in California. I just had moved from, from Arizona. And I was trying to find a dealership. Nissan wanted me to wanted to put me in a dealership to, as, as an owner. So I was looking for one. And, of course, the, 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 the dealerships were terrible. Uh, in terrible condition. I remember sitting down in my very first sales meeting with the with the entire staff. I just told them, okay, from this point forward, anybody who lies to sell a car is fired. I'm in charge. I'm responsible. My name is going to be tested here. We're not going to lie to sell cars. And even the owner of the dealership that I was going to buy into he, he pulled me aside and said, oh, you don't really mean that. You're not going to fire anybody for lying. You know what's really sad? I expect that in the car business. I do. But I don't expect it from Christians. And every time you talk to a Christian about lying, you get the opportunity, if you teach through the Bible like we do here, uh, to talk about lying all the time. The devil is the father of lies. Is it ever okay to tell a lie? And we think, well, yeah, it's okay to lie. But it's never okay to lie. So here's what you have to do. The Spirit will lead us into all truth. But in order to do that, we've got to be truth tellers. Now here's the thing, Matt. I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know it's hard because we're so conditioned to lie. We can do it without it even pricking our conscience, which ought to terrify us, by the way. But when you lie, you need to hate it. You need to fix it right away. And I mean exaggerating is a lie, not telling the whole truth is a lie, uh, in addition to outright lying. But when you lie to somebody or lie about somebody, you got to hate it so much that you immediately repent to God and then make it right with the people that you lied to. And the way you can do that, as embarrassing as it is, say, you know what, I promised God I wasn't going to lie anymore. And I'm such a sinner, I keep lying. What I just told you wasn't true is the way I communicated it to you. And pretty soon, with your obedience, the Holy Spirit will change your heart toward lying. We serve a God who cannot lie. Literally, in the Greek, it's a not lying God. Well, we who are his people need to be a not lying people. And when we lie because it's convenient or when we lie at work because everybody else does or we need to sell something and, you know, everybody lies in order to sell something, we, we just have to hate it. And we got to have the faith to trust that God is with us and that he will bless our efforts at not lying. So, Matt, you're not supposed to lie, so stop. Don't let the difficulty of the change 
keep you from doing your best to make the change. You know, Jesus said at the end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we look at that and we see, uh, well, the perfection's impossible. That's too high a standard. And even though we can't be perfect, we're still to aim for perfection. And if we aim for perfection, the result will be that every day we're a little bit more like Jesus than the day before. Every day we're moving in that direction, steadily moving in that direction towards perfection. Lying is one of the things that has to be taken from our lips. We simply cannot lie. Good question, Matt. Donna says, if Planned Parenthood supports women's health, why are so many Christians opposed to Planned Parenthood? I know they do abortions, but what about the good stuff they do? Donna, a couple of things. One, the the the, the, the murder of unborn children uh, isn't counterbalanced by doing good things. I mean, that's just the human way that we kind of look at things. Well, they do good. They don't do good. Everything they do is 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 covered in blood, the innocent blood of 65 million babies in our nation. Planned Parenthood, if people would look, I mean, if we treated Planned Parenthood like we treat people who, who in their past have racist pasts and tendencies, we're unwilling to forgive, we'll hold grudges for decades against them. No, when they were young, they said this, they did this. Planned Parenthood was designed in part to stop the birth of black children in this country. To stem the population growth of black children. And sadly, the black community um, is victimized by Planned Parenthood as a percent of the whole more than any other in the United States still to this day. So the murder of unborn children isn't counterbalanced by any good they might do. I would also ask you, Donna, what good do they do? You know, when when you say, um, and you're paraphrasing what Planned Parenthood always says, the arguments when people come against, no, we're here for women's health. They're not here for women's health. If they cared about women's health, they would help them have babies, not kill babies. They would understand the damage, deep, deep, damage in our psyches that having an abortion does. Now, I realize there are women that have abortions and and have no conscience at all, no problem with their conscience at all. I understand there are some, but there are also murderers, some of the mass murderers who have no problem with their conscience. That ought to terrify them as well. So they're not concerned about women's health. They're concerned about money. And the way they make money is by killing babies. And there's nothing that Planned Parenthood does for women's health that can't or shouldn't be done by a doctor. And yeah, they do a lot of stuff for free. So do we here at Calvary Chapel, by the way. We've got a fully functioning doctor's office, family practice doctor's office, two doctors and a pediatrician, that's three, physician's assistant, a staff of nurses, we don't charge anything. Why? Because we really do care about women's health. But when pregnant girls come to Planned Parenthood, believe me, Planned Parenthood isn't concerned about their health. Planned Parenthood is about killing babies and getting paid by the government to do it. I don't know how this conversation ever came to pro-life, pro-choice. I don't know how this conversation ever turned to be about women's health. It never has been about women's health. It never will be. Planned Parenthood is about killing babies. My final thought on this, Donna. What do you think the future of some of those 65 million babies would have been? Would we have had some doctors who would have cared for the poor? Would we perhaps have had a president or two? Would we have a scientist? 
a Nobel Prize winner, perhaps somebody who discovered a cure for cancer. Maybe we'd have had some pastors and evangelists for sure. But you see, those children never got a chance to live. And to justify their murder by claiming women's health is at stake is to be deceived by the arguments of this world. We call evil good and good evil. That's the time we live in. Donna, do some research. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a heartbreaking question from James. Uh, How should I deal with the stuff that our kids are being taught in public school? James is a Christian. Um, You know, and and the choice for schools uh, is a parent's choice. And you make the choice of what to do, how to school your children. Uh, you, You make those choices prayerfully and you seek the will of God. I understand that. So don't take anything I'm about to say personal. However, I can't imagine... Uh, having a child who is raised in a public school where they're terrified about climate change instead of learning how to read, write, and do math and science. Um, I've got two grandchildren in literally the gayest city in the United States of America, Palm Springs, California. Um, They're being taught that being homosexual or transgender is a perfectly normal, acceptable, approvable thing to do. We ought to affirm those behaviors. They're being taught that there really is no God. Imagine my kids, their parents, take him to church, tell him about Jesus, but school saying, they're not. So, you, James, I, I, I just couldn't have my kids in a public school. I just couldn't. That's one of the reasons we have a free school here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. 340-9585. Let's go to the phones and talk first with uh, Henry on line one from San Antonio. Henry, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, I had a question. My brother was asking me. I was kind of reading this morning about uh, pain and his brother Abel, and then my brother was talking about uh, how did Cain get married if it was only Abel and Cain at that time? And I told him it's probably sisters, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, and, and Henry, there were a lot of kids. You know, uh, we, we know that, that uh, uh, Adam lived 930 years, and we don't know what age Cain and Abel were. They could have been 100 years old. Now remember... A hundred was like being young and vigorous at that time. So uh, there, there would have been lots of kids. The Bible doesn't tell us all of the kids. Uh, the Bible just focuses on the ones that are germane to the story. So uh, there would have been lots of sisters in a perfect world or a near-perfect world uh, before the effects of sin had, had, had become accumulative. Um, there was no sin against uh, uh, marrying sisters and then cousins and so there would have been a lot of people on the earth. And when he was driven from uh, his home, um, um, there would have been a lot of people. Imagine in an environment like that, how many people would be born. We have a bunch of babies being born here at Calvary Chapel. Well, imagine if we lived for all of those years, hundreds of years, in, in a, an environment that, that wasn't yet fully corrupt by sin. So uh, these would have been sisters and cousins uh, the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and that's exactly what they did. So, Henry, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much. Let's go to Daniel on line two from San Antonio. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Daniel, are you there? Oh, I guess we lost. Hey, Ron, Daniel, are you there? Quick. I just wanted to ask you okay. a question. In the, okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, real quick. I just want to ask you a question. Uh, in the Bible, and it says in the beginning, right, that uh, when God created uh, Adam and Eve, that it says that they were both naked and that they were not ashamed. And it says that it wasn't until they ate from the tree that the Lord uh, told them not to eat from that they 
says that their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. Uh, well, my question is, I would suppose, you know, if somebody walked into a room today and they were naked, I mean, we would, we would, would we, we would say that that's a sin, right? I mean, mm-hmm. well, I'm assuming that it is, right? But I'm wondering, did the Lord relate to us in a different way uh, than... Because, uh, I, you know, I, I just think to myself, like, you know, that before the... They, you know, they weren't... Because that they were naked and they weren't ashamed, so, um, you know, I, I wonder how the Lord related to us in a different way than... than I, I yeah, don't think Daniel, he us according to the knowledge of good and evil. Or... Yeah, Daniel, he he didn't have to relate to Adam and Eve the same way he relates to us. Prior to the entrance of sin, they would have been clothed in the glory of God. Remember, we're, we're talking about an unfallen world, God's perfect creation. And uh, they were born majestically perfect. or Not born, but created by God, majestically perfect. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't. I don't think we're really talking about clothing there before the fall. Um, what they were covered in was the glory of God. Now, when they sinned, that's when the glory departed, and that's when they would have been aware. Remember, the tree that she ate from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Prior to the, the that moment, they knew only good, and suddenly they could look at their bodies, see their naked. And they were shamed, and that shame comes from not being naked, but comes from sin that separated them from God. So uh, the fact that they were even aware that they were naked was a sense of shame and embarrassment. Daniel, thank you for calling. I wish we had more time. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Remember, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio on the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow at 4 on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.